1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 8th, 2018, the way too much news edition. I'm David Potts of Atlas Obscura. I'm in a friend's bedroom in San Francisco, California. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. John Dickerson of CBS is in New York. And on this week's show an extraordinary election leads to perhaps an ordinary outcome. It's more or less what was predicted, but with enormous consequences for the nation, we will chew that over and digest it. Then could this election reshape voting rights in America? There has been so much discussion about voting rights, ballot access, who gets to vote. Did this election mark a turning point in that big fight? And then attorney general, Jeff Sessions had been, has been fired that is an attorney general that I will not miss or will I, we will discuss plus we'll have cocktail chatter and a reminder. We are going to do our annual conundrum show December 12th at NYU Skirbel center in Manhattan. Their tickets at slate.com slash live. It is a delightful evening of contemplation, fighting agreeable, jolly fighting and, uh, insight into uh, human nature and into the grand questions of life. So you should please come and join us at our conundrum show and we're going to have a great special guest Simon Dunin who's the judge on making it that wonderful that wonderful wonderful television show who is really such great company and so much fun to be around and is such a wise and fun person he's going to join us at that show. So come see us and Simon contemplate conundrums On December 12th, slate.com slash live for tickets. Tuesday night marked the most anticipated midterm election of my lifetime, I think. We had extraordinary results in the House and the Senate and in some governor's races. But it netted out roughly where people expected. Democrats slightly outperformed their House expectations. Republicans slightly outperformed their Senate expectations, but not much in either case. And there was a mixed bag in the governor's races. Democrats lost big races in big states. On the other hand, they knocked off Scott Walker. They took the governor's mansions back in Michigan and Illinois. They dinged Chris Kobach. They won a bunch of House seats. They had no business winning. John Dickerson, what is the story of this election?
2: Well, there are, you know— so many different storylines of the election, but I think the big, big story election is that people were looking for a referendum about the president, and I think you got a split decision. I think you got in the Senate, you have the structural uh, challenges for Democrats which played out, which is that Democrats lost in red states. Even if Donald Trump weren't the president, you would expect um, that to happen. The country has stopped splitting tickets. So you have senators who tend to come. Uh, from the state of the party of the presidential candidate who wins their state. So Donald Trump won those states. It's likely that senators are going to be Republicans from that state. But as far as the president is concerned, it did ratify the strength of his coalition and his tactics. Remember, this campaign was really about the president choosing to go his own way, even different than what some Republicans were talking about, emphasizing the border, emphasizing those um, identity issues. Then totally different message in the House, that Republicans were defending 60 of 65 battleground seats, uh, you not only had Democrats winning in areas that look more like the country, that look more like the what the battleground will be in the general election in 2020, but you also had this extraordinary number of women, people of color, people from the LGBT community being sent to Washington. It's um, So I think it drove the divisions in the country actually – more uh, to be m- more divided um, and sort of each side got a boost for itself, which means not only how will that, you know, that that's going to affect governing going forward, but it also is going to affect the way people interpret and read things going into the next presidential election, kind of with both sides seeing plenty of vindication for their for their own views.
3: You're talking about it as a split decision because of the way the Senate is um, chosen versus the House. But when you look at the popular vote total across the country, Democrats won by a large margin, right? We're up in like the eight and 9% range. And so is it really a split decision or is it a split decision as filtered through America's political system? Yes. And, okay.
2: Yes. <laughs> Correct. Yes, it's it's the former. It's the former. The signal coming from that's I guess what I was trying to say when I met the electorate that that sent more Democrats to the House, is a closer to the electorate that will be uh, important for the for 2020, and is closer to. I mean, it's just a larger and more representative uh, portion of the country than the Senate, which was um, had all kind of uh, sort of structural issues with that. So yes, it's a split decision. I just meant in terms of the way uh, the two parties will see it, but I think. In terms of the what what signal did we get from this, which is the first response from the voters, official response from the voters, uh, the stronger one comes from the House. So I think that's so you're right.
3: Right. And then I just feel like this raises all these questions about this increasing um, gap or strain on our constitutional system where we see effectively non-majoritarian um, sets of voters wielding more and more power in a way that is a, a contradiction or in conflict with what more of the country seems to want. It's complicated, obviously, because even though turnout was high, it's not everybody. But that still is this increasing challenge that we're seeing.
2: Right, exacerbated by the particular map of this cycle. Um, the next cycle, for example, in the Senate, Republicans are defending a, a map that looks bad for them. And so you could imagine a situation next cycle where. Um, Democrats have big victories on the Senate side, it wouldn't reflect this, the point you just made, which isn't to say that the point you just made about representation in the American system isn't one worth debating. I'm just saying this particular map exacerbated what you're talking about.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Although the 2020 map is kind of problematic for Democrats, too, in the Senate, isn't it? I mean, or it doesn't – at least it's not clear what it's, will happen, a, even if a, we have the same kind of
2: – It's a lot better for Senate Democrats than this one was. Um, and then you, we should also add in the signal sent by uh, the governor's races, I mean, because you had uh, victories in Michigan and Wisconsin, which completely um, reverse what some people were saying, I think over reading it. But some people were saying about 2016 in the, and President Trump's victories in the in the Midwest. Um, you saw a, a return of Democratic strength in the Midwest um, and in, o, in Ohio in the Senate race, not the governor's race, but you saw a return of strength from Democrats in the Midwest that completely reverses the storyline people were uh, taking out of the 2016 victories from Donald Trump there.
3: Right. Though well, then you see these losses in the south with um you know probably with Stacey Abrams in Georgia and Andrew Gillum in Florida. And I would add Beto O'Rourke and the Senate in Texas, these were the three most exciting Democratic kind of new candidates of this election. None but, of them will be in office. And
2: Well, I think, yeah, although Texas and Georgia are such a steep climb, Florida is the interesting one because it's a split purple state. So that was the one where you really see the forces of the left and right against each other in equal measure, whereas, you know, you could imagine Texas and Georgia in four or eight years being a more favorable landscape for Democrats than now. You know, some people would argue that Abrams and and O'Rourke did incredibly well given how far they had to go, given the natural politics of those states.
1: But Emily, do you read the Abrams and O'Rourke and uh, Gillum performances in particular as failure or success? I think a lot of your – one's perspective on the election might be, were these very successful campaigns or were these – disastrous campaigns where where the Democrats blew a shot for huge wins?
3: Oh, I don't think the Democrats blew it. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the reading that these were uphill climbs, especially in Georgia and Texas. But I would say in Florida, too. I just I feel the loss of these politicians for the Democratic Party. Like they were exciting faces. They were bringing... Um, you know, new ideas, ways of talking about the Democratic platform to to voters. Um, and so I think that's going to be a loss that the Democratic Party is going to feel going forward in the short term. In the medium term, I think John may be right about the changing demographics favoring Democrats more down the line. Though the Florida loss for Gillan, and we should add probably for Ben Nelson in the Senate too, is obviously a different kind of more moderate politician, but he couldn't win either in Florida. We don't think you know what i what strikes me about that is this frustration Democrats keep hoping this new coalition of young voters and people of color are going to be emerged, and it's going to be enough, and it's not quite enough yet now, in Georgia, that may be in part, or even in large part, because um, Stacey Abrams' opponent, Brian Kemp, who's the Secretary of State, was doing such an effective job of purging voters from the rolls. Um, But it's just It's not winning elections quite yet. And so then the question becomes, do the Democrats just need to be patient or in the, you know, looking at the 2020 timeline, do they need to go back to the strategy of focusing on Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan in the presidential race? Because those states seemed much more hospitable um, given the results in the governor's elections.
1: So John had to step out for some breaking news. So Emily and I are going to continue the show together. Do do you read the election this week, Emily, as being a victory for the uh, moderate wing of the Democratic Party and a repudiation of this idea of of progressivism as as a reasonable national strategy? Or do you think the results are mixed and in certain places, obviously, the progressives are doing fine and it's just it's that you shouldn't uh, draw too much out of it is it is the, is this a, a lesson like oh we you know we need a, uh, a we the democrats need a centrist uh, presidential candidate in 2020 because this progressive experiment we tried was a was a failure get rid of all that medicare for all business and let's get back to to uh, invading countries in the middle east <laughs>
3: God, that's such a depressing way to spin it. I can't handle that. I think the progressives came across strongly in this election. I mean, when you look at the House results, there were some really, you know, out there liberal voices who will now be in the House of Representatives. I think the Democrats did an effective job of sticking to their health care message, but also running in somewhat different tones in different parts of the country. And that's a good strategy for congressional elections. How that translates into a presidential candidate seems much trickier to me, and I can see the sort of centrist argument. I actually don't think it's so much about centrist versus progressive than about someone really being a good um, policy oriented, like stick to the message challenger to Trump, who is, you know, practicing his pol- his theater of, of distraction so effectively this week of all weeks, um, as he always does. And who, so whoever this candidate is has to be really um, nimble on that front. I kind of think that whatever the policy agenda is, as long as it seems authentic to that person and um, and th- that candidate can really like forcefully <laughs> expound on it, despite all the theater, that's going to be the winning tactic. But what do you think about the lessons here?
1: Um, I think a couple of things. One, th- there was one analysis that I saw, which I found very striking, which is that if you look at the state of the economy, which is good, the state of foreign policy, which is that we are not engaged in any disastrous wars or anything disastrous overseas right now, that the Republicans had a monumentally, extraordinarily poor performance on Tuesday. And so even though the results are certainly a mixed bag and there were disappointments for the Democrats, to read this as anything less than a massive triumph for democrats and democratic ideas uh is a mistake and for the reasons that we've discussed the structural reasons that make it harder for democrats to win certain kinds of house seats and make it harder for them to win a bunch of senate seats because these are small population very conservative states and so you're just totally screwed i mean north dakota north dakota has probably fewer people than than you know uh seven blocks in in brooklyn um but uh so so on the at the top level this is a real victory for democrats and whatever it is they stand for and it does seem to me that the progressive ideas uh, have currency with people that i think people are willing to entertain them and that just as the conservatives for many years ran on issues that were well to the right of where the pub, the public the public as a whole is and well to the right of where the median voter is I think Democrats should probably take their chance to run a bit to the left of where the median voter is, and not and not say, well, because some progressives lost, and because Gillum couldn't win, and Abrams couldn't win, and Beto couldn't win, that the progressive ideas are are a failure. People are galvanized by those ideas, and those ideas have meaning for folks. Like people are moved by the idea of higher minimum wages and safe, you know, health care for themselves. I myself am not particularly progressive but i would be disappointed if democrats took the lesson that they should abandon these ideas before they've even pushed them for for more than a year as the conservatives have shown this is not a one election project this is a generational project to change the terms of debate
3: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And when you think about rising inequality, which, you know, continues to be with us, kind of masked by full employment right now, you would think that that would be a good way to create a broad coalition, um, one that's able to transcend racial and ethnic differences, which have obviously been exploited um, to such a degree by – Trump before this election and 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 continue to be. I mean, you know, the sort of caravan theater seems to have completely ended now that the election's over. There are just all these examples of distraction that remain these effective political tactics. But I think the Democrats have to figure out how not to fall into that trap. And I wonder what you think about Nancy Pelosi's leadership going forward. Whether she's the right person to be. Um, leading the Democrats in the House given all her wealth of experience and times when she's been very effective at hurting at the cats of the House. On the other hand, she is a total lightning rod for criticism um, with really low approval ratings. And that makes me really wonder about having her at the head of the party in the House right now.
1: I go back and forth on the Nancy Pelosi question because on the one hand, she has been around this party for too long. There's a dearth of promising uh youngish leaders not young leaders not i'm not talking about the folks who just got elected but the the people who might be in their 40s and 50s today there's a dearth of people who have a strong profile who are going for it and are are um possible alternatives to her so i don't think there's a strong bench which is uh, she deserves blame for not to have cultivated people who could now step in and and challenge her um that said uh she's a very effective legislator and whoever is in that role is going to be a lightning rod we've seen that with mitch mcconnell we've seen it with paul ryan like it doesn't matter that mitch mcconnell has no charisma and is and is an unappealing person if you are an effective legislator you can get a lot done and withstand the people who are criticizing you and making memes about you so i i think pelosi for the moment probably is their most likely an effective leader. So she should probably stick at it. My, my question back at you, Emily, is what is the strategy that House Democrats should pursue? They do not have the possibility of actually getting legislation passed and signed by the president, at least not the legislation they want to do, want to get passed. So what is it they should spend the next two years doing?
3: I would really like them to focus on corruption in the government. And there are you know different examples of that. There are our investigations into various cabinet secretaries. You know, right now, Ryan Zinke's corruption possibilities seem like they deserve a good thorough airing. I'm right now um, thinking a lot about the trial and the challenge to the citizenship question in the census. Um, and I would re- like the Democrats, If we'll see, some of this may or all of it may come out in the trial. But I think the Democrats should try to understand what the basis was for adding this question to the census in the face of all this um, evidence from researchers in the Census Bureau that is going to depress turnout, especially um, among immigrants and other groups that are hard to count, that will have serious implications. Not
1: turnout. For... Not turnout. The word <laughs> isn't turnout. Depress the actual count of people. It's yes. not like a thing that people are going to do. It's like the, the government's job is to count everyone.
3: You're totally so, right. I am using actual a li- count. Am using election words. And you're absolutely right. Depressed participation in filling out the census, which every single resident of the United States is supposed to do. Or it's, a, it's an enumeration. Anyway, I think that would be a good focus of energies. The first move Tuesday night, or at least the first like flash in the news, was about subpoenaing President Trump's tax returns. And I understand the impulse to do that. Um, I think the country deserves to know what's in those tax returns. I also think the Democrats need to be careful not to um, overstep politically. They need to seem like they are proceeding in a kind of sober and responsible rather than vengeful fashion. And I'm not sure exactly why that tax returns newsflash made me nervous, but it did. And I wonder if you had a different reaction.
1: No, I I had the same reaction. I had the same reaction. I actually think I disagree with your basic premise – It's not that I don't think they should investigate corruption. I think corruption is a massive theme of this administration and good government is something we should all want and therefore, of course, the House should make sure to to probe into those things. But that would not be my first order of business. My first order of business, if I were a Democratic legislator, is even though I know that none of the bills that I'm going to uh, put forward are going to become law, you want to lay down a marker and say, here's what we stand for. And so if I were... I would have very um boisterous uh, committee hearings about health care and about the expansion of health care and about uh, strengthening Obamacare, considering you know Medicare for all bills. That's one thing I would do. i would I would take on elements of the progressive agenda and I would p- try to pass kind of, Bills that you can get past the Democratic Caucus that you can get a that you can get all the Democrats to vote for, or enough to 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 pass it through the House, knowing that they're going to die in the Senate and they're never going to become law, and and but to make a statement saying we are serious about wanting to do good work for the American people, we're not sitting here with distraction. We're going we're going to do good policy, and I think again going back to what what conservatives did for many years during the Obama and to a lesser extent the Clinton presidency to do that is extremely effective, both at keeping your base excited and also at, at, at showing that you're engaged with, with issues that have uh, resonance for people. So corruption is wicked. And this administration is massively uh, corrupt and at, at a level that we haven't seen before. I think that is true. I don't think that that should be the first story that Democrats are telling throughout the next two years. It suggests they're wasting their time. Their job is to go and be legislators. So try to go and be legislators.
3: Yeah, you're right. I completely withdraw what I said before. I mean, I do think they need to do some investigating along the way, but I think their priority should be about policy and that it's also a way of creating bills that then can be revived at some later date when you actually have control of both chambers. Right. 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 Presumably. Um, And so you're right. That's a total opportunity. And you could say that you can tell that what I said earlier was semi ridiculous because I started with Ryan Zinke, which like that is not the main event in Washington right now. And like, yes, we should find out what's going on with him. But the priority should be the priorities that people have, the things that are going to really affect a lot of people's lives.
1: Slate Plus members, of course, get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And we're going to have a discussion of what we think were the most overlooked races, the most overlooked campaigns of Tuesday. And we're going to discuss which, which ones caught our eye, but maybe didn't get the attention they deserved. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus and become a member. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting auraframes.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Voting rights is arguably one of the big stories of the election. The disenfranchisement of hundreds of thousands of people, their are difficult in getting ballot access in places like Florida. On the other hand, we had Florida's amendment for restoring the rights uh, uh, to vote of ex-felons, which, as Emily Bazelon will tell you, is the most extraordinary act of enfranchisement since 18-year-olds got the right right to vote, or maybe even since women won the right to vote. So, Emily, can you give, give us a bit of the landscape around voting rights in this election and the big issues and and what happened.
3: Yeah, so Florida's Amendment 4, which I wrote about and I'm super interested in, got a lot of attention justifiably. I think the next big challenge will be to register all those folks to vote. So we can talk about that more in a minute. But to keep going across the country, Michigan passed um a whole package of voting rights let legis- le- it, it was not legislation because it was ballot initiative. So there's going to be automatic voting, um voter registration in Michigan. They also changed the way that they redistrict. Um they're having an independent commission. Nevada also passed automatic voter registration and the same kind of redistricting commission passed in Colorado and I think also in Utah. So we just are seeing a kind of, movement towards voting rights through ballot initiatives in the country. And I wonder if that shows that we've turned a corner on voting rights, that if you put these questions directly to voters rather than relying on legislators who may be seeing it through a partisan political lens, you can get these voting rights reforms through as kind of basic good government um, provisions. You know, when people are polled about gerrymandering, they don't like it. And so If you give them an option of um, voting for turning this over to, you know, independent, nonpartisan group of people to to draw the maps, they seem to be making that choice. And that's something that could really have an impact for the future as we think about how to – protect people's voting rights, how to make sure that we really have majority rule in the country, as opposed to this sort of slicing and dicing of the electorate that creates a a real imbalance and and stands in the way of proportional representation within a state, right, where you have like the power of voters um, amplified if they're in the ruling party and then, um, you know, pushed way, way down if they're in the losing party.
1: It is a really interesting example of where the interests of the political class and the desires of voters are intrinsically in conflict, which is that legislators have such an interest in protecting themselves and protecting themselves often means gerrymandering often means setting up rules that make it difficult for them to lose power, to lose elections. And voters, even voters who are very partisan don't share that belief. I don't think most, most voters want their vote to count and to count in a meaningful way. And they, and they resent being used as a tool for a political class. And so while the voter manipulation and the voting rights voter manipulation through gerrymandering and through ballot access have generally come from the right and while Republicans in general are more sympathetic to the to those kinds of issues, it is also the case that all voters even whether they're Republican or Democrat are much less uh, in favor of these issues than all legislators are. And so, as you say, if you make it a popular vote, you can get something done. I, I found the results in Florida, which I hope you'll go into, Emily, extraordinary. The fact that here in a, in a state which is obviously divided 50-50 on when it comes to voting and politicians, the fact that you could get more than 60% of voters turning out to vote in favor of something which re-enfranchises a million-plus people who are disproportionately poor, disproportionately uh, minority, and disproportionately probably likely to vote for one party or the other, probably likely to vote for Democrats, is extraordinary. It's an act of – it shows that voters are independent of what – if legislators had to vote on it, there's no way they'd get 60% of that. Right. The Florida legislature to vote in favor of it.
3: Yeah. So, yes, let's talk about Amendment 4 for a minute because it's, like, my favorite topic. So, first of all, it's – this amendment is came out of years of work, particularly by a man named Desmond Mead, who I wrote about for The Times Magazine, who um, is a former felon himself, um, really became the kind of heart and soul of this movement, spent years working on it um, without, like, a paid salary to directly do this work traveling the state. And after Trump won in 2016, This movement started getting more attention from liberal donors um, who were willing to take a chance on it. And one of the reasons the money started coming in um, and Desmond's organization grew was that this provision, this amendment pulled really well from the beginning. From the beginning, it was over 70 percent. So when I was writing about it over the summer, I still saw it as a long shot because I figured that... There was enough at stake in Florida, enough of a chance that giving uh, 1.5 million former felons the right to vote would be seen as turning Florida blue, that someone would come in hard against this um, ballot measure and run a bunch of attack ads and its approval rating would go down among voters. And the amazing thing to me about this election was that never happened. Instead, evangelical groups came out in favor of the amendment in large part because they saw it as like part of a kind of Christian view of redemption and second chances. And then the other fascinating thing to me was that the Koch brothers also declared their support for it, the Koch network, I guess I should say. They didn't actively donate to the campaign in favor of the amendment, but they did not fund the opposition. And nobody else really came in against it um, in an organized fashion at all. And so I think what you saw here was voters not primed by, you know, Fox News to oppose this, not given the sort of red meat and fear-mongering ads that you might have expected. They just like kind of voted in a more common sense way, or maybe from the heart, about um in favor of second chances. And that's why you saw this um, you know, really bipartisan um supermajority support for this amendment. Now, of course. The question is registering these former felons to vote. Traditionally, across the country, people who've gone to prison have a low rate of voter registration and participation in elections. But this organization that Desmond Mead has formed is in a good position now to start signing up lots of people. And there are examples of this happening also in Virginia and um, Louisiana, which have loosened restrictions on the voting rights of former felons, too. So it's going to be really um, important to watch to see how effective people are in signing up these um, these new voters. And that should be a kind of bipartisan effort about increasing participation in the democracy. There's also some interesting research that when people are registered to vote and they start identifying themselves as citizens, that that can actually like make it more likely that they get employment and that they stay away from reoffending. And that seems like a kind of almost too good to be true consequence of registering to vote but there is some some suggestive finding along those lines and so um so i'll continue to feel like excited and interested in in this topic i also want to talk a little bit about automatic voter registration i mean that seems like the most boring thing in the world but it also can make a huge difference in participation rates and we don't have it in most states um I think we also could look to the Democrats in the House to make that part of their platform, passing federal um, AVRs, it's called for short. And this idea that these basic, the sort of maintenance of our democracy, that they deserve real attention in, ideally, in both parties' platforms, uh, that, you know, could be something really interesting to watch going forward.
1: Emily, did you take the same deep sort of... Sp- Soul filling pleasure in Chris Kovac's defeat, as I did. He is another person who's whose his political career has been made on on absolutely deceptive, false, disgusting arguments or cases around alleged and non-existent voter fraud. And to see him dismissed by the voters of Kansas was very gratifying.
3: Look, I mean, if you're going to talk about the 2018 elections as a victory for voting rights, you have to include um, the downfall of Chris Kobach, who has been just one of the main proponents of the notion that there's widespread um, in-person voting fraud. That is a myth. It is not widespread. Um, Kobach has Done his utmost, I would say, as the secretary of state in Kansas to make it harder for certain groups of voters, um, you know, purging the roles uh, in ways that seem like they're designed to um, particularly target minorities, I'd argue. And he just, you know, had this, I would say, embarrassing performance at a federal trial um, in Kansas versus the ACLU where he just did not seem to really be able to handle himself properly in court. So, yeah, I mean, I think um, if you're thinking about voting rights, um, having Chris Kobach go down in defeat and not be the governor of Kansas is significant. We'll see what happens to him next. Somehow I, I doubt that we've heard the last from him.
1: Attorney General, United States Attorney General, Chris Kobach.
3: Right, I mean, maybe would this Senate confirm him? Although I guess this morning the rumors are more about Chris Christie. Just quickly looking at Twitter, but I mean, I also well, we'll talk more about the, the when you vacancy. talk about
1: discredited, discredited <laughs> uh, Chris Christie. Uh, but with alliterative names. Right. Chris.
3: We can have a battle between Chris with a K and Chris with a C.
1: So one final question about the voting rights issues, Emily, is that a lot, a lot of the ones you cite, including Amendment 4 in Florida, these are uh, state-level actions, um, not really reviewable by the Supreme Court. But there, a lot of what's happening around voting rights, ballot access, gerrymandering, redistricting, does ultimately funnel up to the Supreme Court in the sense that we lead legal challenges and people on one side or the other will attempt to make a federal case out of it. And the Supreme Court will get some of these cases as they've gotten them in recent years. This is a very unsympathetic Supreme Court, I would suspect, towards the sort of more pro voting rights side of the, the equation.
3: Yes. And for that reason, it's going to be really important for people who are trying to expand voting rights to do it under state law whenever they possibly can. Um, And that's what we've seen in this past election. I mean, these are state ballot initiatives. There are possible federal challenges um, of the future to independent redistricting commissions. But so far, the Supreme Court in a five to four decision a few years ago said that ballot initiatives that provide for independent redistricting commissions are constitutional. So, you know, one really good example of a a state-based reform is the Pennsylvania map. So this was Uh, The Pennsylvania map was redrawn this year after the Pennsylvania Supreme Court um, said that the gerrymandering that the Republican legislature had done violated the Pennsylvania Constitution, and the Supreme Court declined to review that ruling. And what we saw was a new map that divided the state nine to nine in terms of the congressional representation So that's a much fairer map. I mean, it still uh, advantages Republicans to a degree, but it's an example of um, an anti-gerrymandering change that the Supreme Court is not going to mess with.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: We were hoping to have John back by now, especially for this uh, third topic, but unfortunately the news calls, he won't be able to join us. We are taping at a very um, time of, of busyness and and tragedy, and he's got to cover it for CBS. So we're just going to go on, just me and Emily. So uh, if you were hoping to hear John talk about Jeff Sessions, you're going to miss your chance. But you get to hear Emily talk even more about Jeff Sessions. So what could be better?
3: <laughs> Uh-oh.
1: So Jefferson Sessions. Jeff what is it? Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, whatever yeah. that his extraordinary extraordinary name is, uh, is out as Attorney General. He was fired. He was asked to resign by the president, but he was that means he was fired by the president the day after the election. The president has named Mark Whitaker, who is Sessions as chief of staff, and politician from Iowa as the acting Attorney General, who which he can be for up to nine months, and then he, even longer if they, if there's a Another candidate waiting, awaiting confirmation, and Whitaker has seems to have immediately taken over authority of the Mueller investigation from Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General. So, Emily, big news: should the American public be uh, sad that Sessions is gone?
3: <laughs> this is just the most ironic firing in the world, and I have such a split set of emotions about it. Okay, on the one hand, you know, Jeff Sessions has been an incredibly effective Trump loyalist for the Trump agenda of, um, you know, anti-immigrant provisions, of the sort of like law and order of, you know, changing the way we think about civil rights and the Justice Department's responsibilities towards civil rights in the country. I mean, there are just so many ways in which he has been deeply conservative and deeply very much on the Trump train. Um, I mean, when the Trump folks needed a high-level official to stand up in favor of family separations at the border last summer when we were seeing kids, you know, put in cages and taken away from their parents, it was Jeff Sessions who went on television and said, this is necessary and a fair way to treat people. So if you think about the Justice Department in terms of its civil rights record, it is hard to mourn the departure of Jeff Sessions. On the other hand, Jeff Sessions has been standing between the American people and like a real serious threat to rule of law since he recused himself from the um, Russia investigation. Now, I would argue that Sessions didn't really have a choice about Actually, Emily,
1: that. can I interrupt you yes. and say I don't think it's Sessions. Sessions has not been standing. Rod Rosenstein has been standing because Sessions was not allowed to oversee the investigation. So Sessions has committed no affirmative act to protect anything. It well, is that he simply is not there.
3: Well, he absented himself, right? I mean, he recused himself. Now, I don't really think he had a choice about recusing himself because he is a lawyer. And the ethics officials, um, you know, the people who really safeguard how um, how ethics work at the Department of Justice told him to step aside. So in that sense, I suppose you're right. But he did make that decision, which, you know, President Trump has um, hated on him for and never understood, And he, like, weathered the criticism. He didn't do a whole lot to push back, but he also, merely in continuing to do his job, I should say, I I suppose we should say, allowed Rod Rosenstein to supervise um, the Mueller investigation. And that's been this, like, you know, fragile but important Compromise isn't quite the right word, but just like structure that has been um, allowing the Mueller investigation to go forward, and now it's gone. And now we have this um, acting Attorney General Mark Whitaker, who is like a, very much a creature of Donald Trump. He at one point, you know, used to be the U.S. Attorney in Iowa. He was no in private practice in Iowa, and then he started writing op-eds opposing the Mueller investigation and going on Fox News. Lo and behold, he became the chief of staff for sessions at the Justice Department, and now he's actually the attorney general for all intents and purposes. And he announced immediately, or the DOJ did, that he is taking over supervision of the Mueller investigation. And so this kind of um, fragile but really important structure around the Russia investigation is now gone. And we're like off in these uncharted, unclear waters. And one big question I have is just, whether Mark Whitaker is a short-term placeholder, or whether Trump is going to keep him in um, in this acting attorney general job for a you know kind of medium, longer-term period. He can serve for at least 210 days um, in this role. There are questions about whether he was properly appointed, but I don't think the case for challenging the appointment itself is very strong. I do think there are questions about whether he too should be recusing himself from any involvement in supervising Mueller because he has these really strongly stated prior opinions about it. So we'll see if some ethics opinions or guidelines emerge from inside the Justice Department. But for right now, he is absolutely asserting his power to do that. And his, the power of supervision here includes the power to you know, approve or deny indictments going forward or subpoenas or new areas investigation. I mean, we're really talking about um, a real potential change here.
1: Let's dig into that a little bit, Emily. So what are the things that uh, Attorney General, Acting Attorney General Whitaker could do to block, delay, stymie the Mueller investigation? And then on the flip side, what is it that the Mueller team or Democrats seeking to protect the Mueller team can do to fight back against those potential limits.
3: Well, one thing Whitaker could do, which when he was being a Fox News commentator slash op-ed writer, he said he favored, was to um, cut off funding for the Mueller investigation. Another thing he talked about um, in his previous commentator role was narrowing the scope of the investigation and then a third thing he can do is, like, outright deny a request for a new investigatory tool like a subpoena or issuing an indictment. Now, I mean, that is, like, some serious high drama because we can assume that Mueller is gathering a lot of sets of facts, right? There's, like – there is evidence collected here. Um, that investigation has gone quiet for the last couple of months because – of the election. And that was absolutely the proper thing to do. And if there's one thing I think we've learned about Bob Mueller, it's that he la- likes to proceed in a proper, by the book fashion. But now we're after the election, and now we would expect to hear. I would say, pretty soon um, from Mueller about what he's learned, who, if anyone, he's planning to indict and what kind of report he's planning to make. And Whitaker is in a position to, um, you know, if he wants to, directly confront and obstruct Mueller on all of those fronts. Now, The politics of doing that, the fallout from that, I think would be significant. The the chances that it would stay, you know, secret in the Justice Department that Mueller had been stymied seem super low. Mueller has also already um, kind of outsourced pieces of this investigation to other prosecutors like the Southern District of New York. So one would imagine that Mueller has already taken some steps to protect the investigation from interference. But... I mean, if there was someone who Trump could have chosen who would interfere with Mueller, Whitaker just seems like that guy.
1: Whitaker also has the ability when Mueller issues a report to decide whether that report is made public or sent on to Congress, which again, as you say, if if that report is suppressed, you can imagine there would be absolute outrage. So I think it Probably couldn't stay quiet forever, but that's that's another tool. I, I also – I had the understanding, Emily, and I could be wrong about this, but I, I feel like someone told me this, that the Mueller grand jury has a life independent of Mueller.
3: Yes, there and is this weird – The Mueller yes. grand
1: jury – yeah, that, Mueller, that the Mueller grand jury could theoretically, even if the Mueller investigation is stymied across different fronts, could pursue things that it's interested in. Now, presumably, there'd be some some – judge or prosecutor putting whispers in its ear about what it should be interested in.
3: Right. I mean, there are these various like creaky workarounds like that idea that this grand jury could somehow take over the investigation seems a little implausible. Also, just like that is not how it's supposed to work. Like we have a special counsel. He was given a job to do. He needs to finish that job. That's really important for just like American law functioning for the idea that no one, including the president, is above the law. We we got to just like finish that in the way it's the standard operating procedure. You know, with the Democrats taking over the House, the House committees are going to become another route for investigations, but they don't have the power of indictment. And again, these are all possible alternatives and presumably they will ensure that we find out what Mueller has learned, but they should not become a substitute for Mueller with his full powers of bringing indictments and pursuing criminal prosecutions. Like there already have been a rash of important indictments that have come out of this investigation. We need to see it to the end.
1: There. We heard from Susan Collins and newly elected uh, Utah Senator Mitt Romney that it was very important for Mueller to complete his investigation and somehow suggesting that they would protect that investigation. The idea that Republican senators are going to stand against Trump and protect that investigation um, seems to me that's a faint-hearted hope that people should have. They have not been strong... In protecting Mueller at all, there's no reason to think they're going to start being strong now. So uh, I know there are people who who feel like, well, Romney and and Collins carry weight and have moral authority and are good people, and I hope that's true. But I I don't hold out too much hope that they would be able to stop something that's a that's that's bad news for this investigation
3: i mean can we please be spared from like mitt romney taking over from jeff flake as the next person who we have to see like endless pictures of like pained expressions and expressions of like concern and regret i i just like uh, spare me
1: let's practice our pained expression i'll do i'll do my mitt romney pained expression all right we're going to take for just like two seconds on the air Let's did you do yours? I, I did, did
3: but I don't think that was very effective radio, our pained expressions that nobody can see.
1: <laughs> mine was pained. It was pained. It sort of was pained, a little bit of sanctimony.
3: Did you make sure to furrow um, your brow? I think the the brow I furrowing did. is key. I furrowed.
1: I they did send I sort of squeezed my lips in an interesting way. Flake it always thoughtful. like
3: looks down. I always feel like I'm looking at some like you know uh, Renaissance portrait of someone looking you know slightly mysterious in his pained expression. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have one other angle of uh, questioning for you, Ms. Bazelon. So if the House Committee, the House is it Ways and Means, who who can ask for Trump's taxes? There is the committee that can ask for Trump's tax returns now if they ask for his taxes what possible legal defenses does he has how how can the the mechanism of the department of justice uh help him not give those taxes up
3: I don't actually think that's a, a about the Department of Justice. I think that is about whoever the new White House Counsel is, and an assertion of executive privilege, and a big fight over the scope of the power Congress has to subpoena and, and investigate the executive branch. And it would end up being a big separation of powers clash that could presumably go to the Supreme Court. Um, you know that that seems like it could. Be on the horizon. And again, I think – you know, I'm so torn here because I really do think we deserve to know what's in those tax returns. And on the other hand, the political theater that and the energy and oxygen that's going to suck up, that's going to be really significant politically.
5: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Emily, it's, it's like where I am. It's so early in the morning and yet I could really use a drink. I just saw this Ruth Bader Ginsburg news flash across the screen.
3: Yeah, it, she just, broke three it's ribs, too, huh?
1: It's, it's too chaotic. There's too much. There's too much happening. I need a stiff drink. When you have your stiff drink and start babbling incoherently, what are you going to be babbling incoherently about?
3: Oh, man, I feel like all weekend people are going to be worrying about the health of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, We, of course, wish her a speedy recovery. It really hurts to break your ribs. I was really interested in how criminal justice reform issues played out on um, Tuesday. And so I'm going to tease our Slate Plus segment by talking about one other amendment. Louisiana ended the practice of um, convicting people based on juries that are not unanimous. And that means now only Oregon has this practice of convicting people of felonies with a jury that doesn't entirely agree. And that just seems like absolutely the right move to be making. It's odd in a sense that the Constitution doesn't require unanimous juries, but we've had states that had this practice. And it seems like it's really important to make sure that everybody who hears the case thinks that someone is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The law has been moving in this direction for a little while now. Florida used to let non-unanimous juries send people to the death penalty, and Alabama used to do that too. So this is good news for justice that we're seeing um, the diminishing of this practice.
1: All right. My chatter is uh, much more trivial, which is that last weekend, family went on an outing in hometown of Washington, DC, and we went to the national Arboretum, which is a wonderful place, which you should definitely go to for all sorts of reasons. But we went to something which I somehow miraculously, despite having grown up in Washington, had never seen before, which is the bonsai exhibit at the, the U S national Arboretum. And this, uh, this Arboretum has the most remarkable collection of bonsai. I don't know if it's one of the great collections in the world. Cause I'm not a bonsai connoisseur, but it's a beautiful, gorgeous, fascinating, delightful collection of bonsai. There's trees that survived the Hiroshima bombing. There are trees that are four or 500 years old. There's these serene little dioramas of tree. And they're absolutely beautiful. And it's very soothing to just walk around and look at them and look at these, these trees, which are normally on a massive scale, at this tiny little scale and these beautiful uh, little uh, worlds that are created. I don't know what is so reassuring to me, what is so uh, nice to live in a Lilliputian world and to to be a giant among these trees, but it, it is really remarkably soothing. So if you get the chance, go see the Arboretum Bonsai exhibit in Washington, D.C. Also, we have been collecting your listener chatters. Thank you for those. And you, please keep them coming. And also, please send us conundrums, too. I just forgot to mention that. At, at Slate Gabfest, send us your great conundrums. But keep sending us your listener chatter, something that you find fascinating or disturbing or delightful that you are going to be talking about at your cocktail party. The listener chatter for this week comes to us courtesy of at David Amon. David Amon recommends a blog post by Jay Rosen of NYU, who's a media critic, media observer. And it's a story about this: how to take the citizen's agenda in campaign journalism. It's Rosen looking back at an experiment that was tried by a North Carolina newspaper more than 20 years ago to cover the election by asking a totally different set of questions than reporters usually cover. It's rather than sort of horse race questions. It's it the only thing they asked was they asked citizens what do you want the candidates to be discussing as they compete for votes and every story they did was about what the public actually wanted to hear from from candidates so they did they ignored the sort of noise and the the distraction which is all we've heard from you know the caravan nonsense and instead simply Focused on asking candidates and getting candidates to discuss the issues that voters said they wanted to discuss and that was the focus of how this newspaper covered it. And it was, you know, edifying and successful. And, you know, I am i think journalists have a hard job and political journalists have a very hard job and there's not one single way to do campaign journalism. But this this is a, an interesting, different and, and inspiring idea for how campaign coverage could work.
3: I just love that someone tried that. That's great.
1: That is our show for today. GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Thanks to like the whole teams of people in every time zone who have helped us today. It's been a very uh, uh, tricky show to put together. So thanks to all of the many efforts that have done that. We are... Again, sorry, John couldn't make it for the whole show, uh, but he will, of course, be back with us next week. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet tweet conundrums and cocktail chatter to us at, at SlateGabFest. For Emily and John, I'm David Plott. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
5: Ever listen to podcasts with your kids? It's a great way to keep them entertained and engage their minds without relying on screens. I want to tell you about a new kids' history podcast hosted by me, Joy Dolo. It's called Forever Ago, and I teamed up with the producers of the award-winning kids' podcast, Brains On, to make it. Forever Ago dives into the amazing backstories of everyday stuff like emojis, video games, and skateboards. We use games, skits, and kid co-hosts to keep the whole family engaged, while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Along the way, we'll hear some incredible stories, like how a curious teenager revolutionized skateboarding. Gnarly. How alarm clocks used to just be people. Rise and shine. And how the poop emoji almost didn't happen. You can find Forever Ago on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
2: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?